Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss plushcare.com slash weight loss from the blackest corners of your mind they call Pulling you deep into shadow. Twisting your senses. Keeping you from sleep. It's time to face your darkest fears. This is Tales to Terrify. Good evening, children of the night, and welcome. That most frightful of nights is nearly upon us. Yes, All Hollow's Eve is just a couple days away. We've got a pair of tales for you tonight that's sure to set the tone and get you in the spirit. And if you're a Patreon supporter, there are even more frights in store. Check your feed on October 31st for a special Halloween bonus treat. Also, after navigating some technical challenges, I'm happy to share that our entire back catalog of episodes is now available ad-free for our supporters on Patreon. That's all the way back to episode one. I dare say it's been a hell of a journey since Larry first invited you into the nook. The show was quite different back in those days. But strolling through the crypt of ancient terrors kind of feels like visiting with an old friend. So, if you're a patron, you're already set up to take a step back in time and revisit some of your old haunts. If you do, let me know what you think. We've got so many stories under our belt now, especially with over 600 episodes, that keeping track of the true standouts can be pretty tough. I'd love to know what some of the most indelible tales in our almost 12 years have been. But for tonight, 
we've got some fresh terrors, both new and old, to toss in your treat bag. Open wide. Our first story for the evening comes from Keith Buzzard. Keith Buzzard is a teacher, writer, and musician currently living in Minnesota, USA. In addition to Tales to Terrify, his work has been featured most recently in Grim and Gilded, Bear Creek Gazette, Idol Inc., Neurological Magazine, Bullshit Lit, and The Under Review. For further nonsense, check him out on Twitter at Keith J. Drazib. It's a private account, but there's no secret password. Just request to follow. Unless you're a cop. Children of the Night, join me for Keith Buzzard's The Roadrunner by Wild Edgar Coyote, a Tales to Terrify original. Once upon a desert evening, while I listened to Wren's keening, pondering trespass, elaborate lavish into cactus keep, while I plotted uninvested, without pursuit and sans incentive, as if my heart had gone unrested, unrested since that final reap. I should have savored, I muttered, that final reap. Now he's dead, and so I weep. Ah, how sweetly I remember every bone and every feather, every misguided acme endeavor, leaving me a hapless heap. Eagerly I built those gallows, complex rubes, golden and hallowed, met with rebuke, succinct and sallow, shallow ends for thoughts so deep. First that hued and hateful avian of whom angels dare not speak. Shameful tongue through smirked beak. Every crime and every caper ever compiled on blueprint paper fails me, assails me, crushes into accordion ever so brief. Subsequent each step inviting discordant sound of organ piping. Some day, my friend, my plans will be complete. Then soon, my friend, my plan was made complete. Bitter now, but once was sweet. Presently I felt a presence, felt the chill of ghostly essence. Sir, I said, or madam, be penance what you seek. My sympathy you'll find lacking, best take your business packing. On my last nerve you are stacking, stacking on a nerve so meek. So I implore you, leave, spirit. Silence here, my words did meet. Ominous and not discreet.
deep, a new eye from reminiscing, spark of life once shown, now missing. Building, bracing, best contraptions acme ever dared conceive. Catapults and slingshots massive, plungers through active, made passive, laws of physics, retroactive once my feet from earth did leave. Only when my eyes look down and I the distant ground perceive, then succumb to gravity. This reverie was all-consuming, and so my soul was sent fuming. Soon again I felt a presence, a sinking mood already bleak. Surely, said I, surely, spirit, you have mistaken me for someone else. Haunting me is quite futile, though your presence is quite troubling. My guilt, not in need of doubling, my pain is clear to see. Your task lies done. Leave me be. Open here I flung the shutter, and oh, I saw it was no other than the ghost of that old roadrunner, the very same I grieve. In he zipped and zoomed around, his ghostly form bloody, unbound, by physics and no logic found. Quite the frightening sight made he. Rotten rune claimed his plumage, succumbed to morbidity. Haunted gaze firmly on me. Then this sprightly bird inspiring sent my languished heart conspiring, and my solemn mood reminding of my plans and genius deep. Though thy form in death reduced, it inspires plots to resume pursuit, Ghastly grim and dearest victim, I rejoice, for my thoughts do leap. Questions demand answers, like where does acme plutonium keep? Quote the roadrunner, beep beep. Oh, that sound once met with vitriol, now felt like a starting pistol. Welcome as a lover's whistle, bosom close that sound I keep. I knew at once there was no stopping my heart and brain from scheming, plotting, excitement refusing bottling, from every pore it did seep. As I was salivating, much like my kin Ralph spying sheep, quote the roadrunner, beep beep. Reverie thus interrupted, new annoyance rediscovered, memories repressed, animosity risen to greet. I blame this bird for my fleeting finances, acme depleting, often led to my own eating. Retribution do I seek. Recompense and justice sweet I shall have from this bird, too to sweet. Quote the roadrunner, beep beep. Startled by these words so brazen, reckless risking relife nascent, scoundrel, said I, your demise I would soon happily repeat. I am shocked by your insistence, at this bold lack of resistance, to the end of your existence, your redeath you rise to me. There was no mischief behind that melancholy gaze so deep. Just a horse haunted, beep, beep.
This bird's honking interjection stilled my vaulting introspection. Builder months and left me buried under weight from fed Unai. Bird, your presence does inspire hellish deeds, though I inquire. How escaped you from hell's fire and to my doorstep dark and creep? Looking grave and ghostly, gamey, gruff and odious, liquid seep. Cease your offensive, beep, beep. Devil magic he must contain to conjure forth a real-life train from tunnel painted by mine own hand. Such devilry indeed. I must resume holy mission, Writing wrong by God's omission, And to the road to perdition Ensure this bird's swift retreat. Perhaps by boulder launched by giant spring Gain this maker's meat. This corpse who mutters, Beep, beep. Then, methought, the air grew colder, Chilled by demon growing bolder, Drudge from depths unknown, unholy, from pitful pit to peak. Wretch, I cried, prithee you just wait, for I still have my rocket skates. Improved, rebuilt at any rate. I'll light the fuse and soon we'll see. Who between us will death close to their bosom keep? Quoth the roadrunner. Beep, beep. Poultry, said I, or poultry geist, poultry still, both bird and devil, either flightless fowl or foul night, gas-born night, abysmal deep. Why have you come to my dwelling? Curiosity begs telling. Have you sign or brush or spelling? Surely these claws you can see. Do you not see these fangs? Fear you not? No tears to weep? Quoth the roadrunner. Beep, beep. Thusly roared I, unleashing rage and tooth and claw on birds so strange, rending, ripping, shredding, stripping flesh and feather did I reap. Or at least that was my intention. Fury sands act me invention, but this bird paid no attention. He spilled no blood and made no peep. And upon further inspection, no earthly form did he keep. Quoth the roadrunner, beep, beep. This bird be no more than a phantom, I explained in frightened tantrum. How can I grasp a phantom foe? I cannot catch, let alone keep. Thrust unto this realization, solidifying my damnation, heralded by proclamation spat from foul and rotted beak. Two syllables have damned my soul, a single word twice repeat. Quote the roadrunner, beep, beep. This fate, cruel and cold and ruthless, monument to my own hubris, tantalizing yet intangible torment, total and bleak. My genius wasted chasing fowl, once caught return from hell's deep bowel, to taunt me from this tortured howl, met with rotted smirking beak. Squandered life and gift, damned Ahab's curse to tongue does lipless leap, those most hated words, beep, beep.
That was Keith Buzzard's The Roadrunner by Wile Edgar Coyote, as read by Seth Williams. Seth Williams, of course, is the managing editor here at Tales to Terrify. He's narrated stories for Tales to Terrify, Far-Fetched Fables, and Starship Sofa. When not day-jobbing, he enjoys listening to fiction podcasts and audio drama. He shares his life with an amazing partner, dog, and a cat. Thank you, Seth. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Want to get a chiseled look in the jawline? Sculpt and shape your jawline with added volume from Juvederm Volux XC. Juvederm Volux XC is an injectable gel specifically designed to be robust enough to improve moderate to severe loss of jawline definition. And it is the first and only hyaluronic acid filler approved for the jawline. Add volume to your jawline for a chiseled look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M dot com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Our second tale tonight comes from E.F. Benson. Edward Frederick Benson was a British author who moved effortlessly between satire and the supernatural. Benson's fascination with macabre was nurtured during his time at Cambridge when he encountered the ghost story master M.R. James. His literary legacy includes the celebrated Map and Lucia series. However, Benson's true love lay in the realm of the supernatural. His tales continue to haunt and captivate to this day, a lasting testament to his abiding fascination with horror. Listen with me, children of the night, to E.F. Benson's The Room in the Tower, first published in 1912. It is probable that everybody who is at all a constant dreamer has had at least one experience of an event or a sequence of circumstances 
which have come to his mind in sleep being subsequently realized in the material world. But, in my opinion, so far from this being a strange thing, it would be far odder if this fulfillment did not occasionally happen, since our dreams are, as a rule, concerned with people whom we know and places with which we are familiar, such as might very naturally occur in the awake and daylit world. True, these dreams are often broken into by some absurd and fantastic incident, which puts them out of court in regard to their subsequent fulfillment. But on the mere calculation of chances, it does not appear in the least unlikely that a dream imagined by anyone who dreams constantly should occasionally come true. Not long ago, for instance, I experienced such a fulfillment of a dream which seemed to me in no way remarkable, and to have no kind of psychical significance. The manner of it is as follows. A certain friend of mine, living abroad, is amiable enough to write to me once a fortnight. Thus, when fourteen days or thereabouts have elapsed since I last heard from him, my mind, probably, either consciously or subconsciously, is expectant of a letter from him. One night last week I dreamed that as I was going upstairs to dress for dinner, I heard, as I often heard, the sound of the postman's knock on my front door and diverted my direction downstairs instead. There, among other correspondence, was a letter from him. Thereafter, the fantastic entered, for on opening it I found inside the ace of diamonds, and scribbled across it in his well-known handwriting. I am sending you this for safe custody, as you know it is running an unreasonable risk to keep aces in Italy. The next evening I was just preparing to go upstairs to dress when I heard the postman's knock, and did precisely as I had done in my dream. There, among the letters, was one from my friend. Only it did not contain the ace of diamonds. Had it done so, I should have attached more weight to the matter, which, as it stands, seems to me a perfectly ordinary coincidence. No doubt I consciously or subconsciously expected a letter from him, and this suggested to me in my dream. Similarly, the fact that my friend had not written to me for a fortnight suggested to him that he should do so. But occasionally it is not so easy to find such an explanation, and for the following story I can find no explanation at all. It came out of the dark, and into the dark, it is gone again. All my life I have been a habitual dreamer. The nights are few, that is to say, when I do not find on awakening in the morning that some mental experience has been mine, and sometimes, all night long, apparently, a series of the most dazzling adventures befall me. Almost without exception, these adventures are pleasant, though often merely trivial. It is of an exception that I am going to speak. It was when I was about sixteen that a certain dream first came to me, and this is how it befell. It opened with me being set down at the door of a big red-brick house where, I understood, 
I was going to stay. The servant who opened the door told me that tea was being served in the garden, and led me through a low, dark-paneled hall with a large open fireplace onto a cheerful green lawn set round with flower beds. There were, grouped about the tea table, a small party of people. But they were all strangers to me except one, who was a schoolfellow called Jack Stone, clearly the son of the house, and he introduced me to his mother and father and a couple of sisters. I was, I remember, somewhat astonished to find myself here, for the boy in question was scarcely known to me, and I rather disliked what I knew of him. Moreover, he had left the school nearly a year before. The afternoon was very hot, and an intolerable oppression reigned. On the far side of the lawn ran a red brick wall with an iron gate in its center, outside which stood a walnut tree. We sat in the shadow of the house opposite a row of long windows, inside which I could see a table with cloth laid, glimmering with glass and silver. This garden front of the house was very long, and at wood end of it stood a tower of three stories, which looked to me much older than the rest of the building. Before long, Mrs. Stone, who, like the rest of the party, had sat in absolute silence, said to me, Jack will show you to your room. I have given you the room in the tower. Quite inexplicably, my heart sank at her words. I felt as if I had known that I should have had the room in the tower, and that it contained something dreadful and significant. Jack instantly got up, and I understood that I had to follow him. In silence we passed through the hall, and mounted a great oak staircase with many corners, and arrived at a small landing with two doors set in it. He pushed one of these open for me to enter, and without coming in himself, he closed it after me. Then I knew that my conjecture had been right. There was something awful in the room, and with the terror of nightmare growing swiftly and envelopingly, I awoke in a spasm of terror. Now that the dream, or variations on it, occurred to me intermittently for fifteen years, most often it came exactly in this form, the arrival, the tea laid out on the lawn, the deadly silence succeeded by that one deadly sentence, and the mounting with Jack Stone up to the room in the tower where horror dwelt, and it always came to a close in the nightmare of terror at that which was in the room, though I never saw what it was. At other times I experienced variations on the same theme. Occasionally, for instance, we would be sitting at dinner in the dining-room, into the window of which I had looked on the first night when the dream of this house visited me. But wherever we were, there was the same silence, the same sense of dreadful oppression and foreboding. And the silence I knew would always be broken by Mrs. Stone saying to me, Jack will show you to your room. I have given you the room in the tower upon which this was invariable. I had to follow him up the oak staircase with many corners, and enter the place that I dreaded more and more each time that I visited in sleep. Or, 
Again, I would find myself playing cards, still in silence, in a drawing-room lit with immense chandeliers, that gave a blinding illumination. What the game was, I have no idea. What I remember, with a sense of miserable anticipation, was that soon Mrs. Stone would get up and say to me, Jack will show you to your room. I have given you the room in the tower. This drawing room where we played cards was next to the dining room, and, as I have said, was always brilliantly illuminated, whereas the rest of the house was full of dusk and shadows. And yet, how often, in spite of those bouquets of lights, have I not pored over the cards that were dealt me, scarcely able for some reason to see them? Their designs, too, were strange. There were no red suits, but all were black, and among them there were certain cards which were black all over. I hated and dreaded those. As this dream continued to reoccur, I got to know the greater part of the house. There was a smoking room beyond the drawing room at the end of a passage with a green baize door. It was always very dark there, and, as often as I went there, I passed somebody whom I could not see in the doorway coming out. Curious developments, too, took place in the characters that peopled the dream as might happen to living persons. Mrs. Stone, for instance, who, when I first saw her, had been black-haired, became gray, and instead of rising briskly as she had done at first when she said, Jack will show you to your room. I have given you the room in the tower, got up very feebly, as if the strength were leaving her limbs. Jack also grew up, and became a rather ill-looking young man with a brown mustache, while one of his sisters ceased to appear, and I understood she was married. Then it so happened that I was not visited by this dream for six months or more, and I began to hope in such inexplicable dread did I hold it that it had passed away for good. But one night, after this interval, I again found myself being shown out onto the lawn for tea, and Mrs. Stone was not there, while the others were dressed in all black. At once, I guessed the reason, and my heart leapt at the thought that perhaps this time I should not have to sleep in the room in the tower and though we usually sat in silence, on this occasion the sense of relief made me talk and laugh as I had never done. But even then matters were not altogether comfortable, for no one else spoke, but they all looked secretly at each other. And soon the foolish stream of my talk ran dry, and gradually an apprehension worse than anything I had previously known gained on me as the light slowly faded. Suddenly, a voice which I knew well broke in the stillness, the voice of Mrs. Stone, saying, Jack will show you to your room. I have given you the room in the tower. It seemed to come from near the gate in the red brick wall that bounded the lawn, and looking up, I saw that the grass outside was sown thick with gravestones. A curious grayish light shone from them, and I could read the lettering on the grave nearest me, and it was, In Evil Memory of Julia Stone. And as usual, Jack got up, and again I followed him 
through the hall and up the staircase with many corners. On this occasion, it was darker than usual, and when I passed into the room in the tower, I could only just see the furniture, the position of which was already familiar to me. Also, there was a dreadful odor of decay in the room, and I woke, screaming. The dream, with such variations and developments as I have mentioned, went on at intervals for fifteen years. Sometimes I would dream it two or three nights in succession, once, as I have said. There was an intermission of six months. But taking a reasonable average, I should say that I dreamed it quite as often as once in a month. It had, as is plain, something of a nightmare about it, since it always ended in that same appalling terror, which so far from getting less seemed to me to gather fresh fear every time I experienced it. There was, too, a strange and dreadful consistency about it. The characters in it, as I have mentioned, got older regularly. Death and marriage visited this silent family, and I never, in the dream after Mrs. Stone had died, set eyes on her again. But it was always her voice that told me that the room in the tower was prepared for me, and whether we had our tea out on the lawn, or the scene was laid in one of the rooms overlooking it. I could always see her gravestone standing just outside the iron gate. It was the same, too, with the married daughter. Usually she was not present, but once or twice she returned again in company with a man who I took to be her husband. He, too, like the rest of them, was always silent. But, owing to the constant repetition of the dream, I had ceased to attach in my waking hours, any significance to it. I never met Jack Stone again during all those years, nor did I ever see a house that resembled this dark house of my dream. And then something happened. I had been in London in this year, up till the end of July, and during the first week in August went down to stay with a friend in a house he had taken for the summer months in the Ashton Forest district of Sussex. I left London early, for John Clinton was to meet me at Forest Row Station, and we were going to spend the day golfing and go to his house in the evening. He had his motor with him, and we set off about five of the afternoon, after a thoroughly delightful day, for the drive, the distance being some ten miles. As it was still early, we did not have tea at the clubhouse, but waited till we got home. As we drove, the weather, which up till then had been, though hot, deliciously fresh, seemed to me to alter in quality, and become very stagnant and oppressive and I felt that indefinable sense of ominous apprehension that I am accustomed to before thunder. John, however, did not share my views, attributing my loss of lightness to the fact that I had lost both my matches. Events provided, however, that I was right, though I do not think that the thunderstorm that broke that night was the sole cause of my depression. Our way lay through deep high-banked lanes, and before we had gone very far I fell asleep, 
and was only awakened by the stopping of the motor. And with a sudden thrill, partly of fear, but chiefly of curiosity, I found myself standing in the doorway of my house of dream. We went, I half wondering whether or not I was dreaming still, through a low oak-paneled hall and out onto the lawn where tea was laid in the shadow of the house. It was set in flower beds, a red brick wall with a gate in it, bounded one side, and out beyond that was a space of rough grass with a walnut tree. The facade of the house was very long, and at one end stood a three-storied tower, markedly older than the rest. Here, for the moment, all resemblance to the repeated dream ceased. There was no silent and somehow terrible family, but a large assembly of exceedingly cheerful persons, all of whom were known to me, and in spite of the horror with which the dream itself had always filled me, I felt nothing of it now that the scene of it was thus reproduced before me. But I felt intense curiosity as to what was going to happen. T pursued its cheerful course, and before long Mrs. Clinton got up, and at that moment I think I knew what she was going to say. She spoke to me, and what was said was, Jack will show you to your room. I have given you the room in the tower. And that, for half a second, the horror of the dream took hold of me again. But it quickly passed, and again I felt nothing more than the most intense curiosity. It was not very long before I was amply satisfied. John turned to me. Right up at the top of the house, he said, but I think you'll be comfortable. We're absolutely full up. Would you like to go and see it now? By Jove, I believe that you're right, and that we are going to have a thunderstorm. How dark it has become. I got up and followed him. We passed through the hall and up the perfectly familiar staircase. Then he opened the door, and I went in. And at that moment sheer unreasonable terror again possessed me. I did not know what I feared. I simply feared. Then like a sudden recollection, when one remembers a name which has long escaped my memory, I knew what I feared. I feared Mrs. Stone, whose grave, with the sinister inscription, In Evil Memory, I had so often seen in my dreams, just beyond the lawn which lay below my window. And then once more the fear passed so completely that I wondered what there was to fear, and I found myself sober and quiet insane, in the room, in the tower, the name of which I had so often heard in my dream, and the scene of which was so familiar. I looked around it with a certain sense of proprietorship, and found that nothing had been changed from the dreaming nights in which I knew it so well. Just to the left of the door was the bed, lengthways along the wall, with the head of it in the angle. In a line with it, was the fireplace and a small bookcase. Opposite the door, the outer wall was pierced by two lattice-paned windows, between which stood the dressing-table, while wrangled along the fourth wall was the washing-stand and a big cupboard. My luggage had already been unpacked, 
for the furniture of dressing and undressing lay orderly on the washstand and toilet table, while my dinner clothes were spread out on the coverlet of the bed. And then, with a sudden start of unexplained dismay, I saw that there were two rather conspicuous objects which I had not seen before in my dreams. One, a life-size oil painting of Mrs. Stone. The other, a black-and-white sketch of Jack Stone, representing him as he had appeared to me only a week before in the last series of these repeated dreams, a rather secret and evil-looking man of about thirty. His picture hung between the windows, looking straight across the room to the other portrait, which hung at the side of the bed. At that I looked next, and as I looked, I felt once more the horror of nightmare seize me. It represented Mrs. Stone as I had seen her in my last dreams, old and withered and white-haired, but in spite of the evident feebleness of body, a dreadful exuberance and vitality shone through the envelope of flesh, an exuberance wholly malign, a vitality that foamed and frothed with unimaginable evil. Evil beamed from the narrow, leering eyes. It laughed in the demon-like mouth. The whole face was instinct with some secret and appalling mirth, the hands clasped together on the knee, seemingly shaking with suppressed and nameless glee. Then I saw also that it was signed in the left-hand bottom corner, and wondered who the artist could be. I looked more closely, and read the inscription. Julia Stone, by Julia Stone. There came a tap at the door, and John Clinton entered. Get everything you want? he asked. Rather more than I want, I said, pointing to the picture. He laughed. Hard-featured old lady, he said. By herself, too, I remember. Anyhow, she can't have flattered herself much. But don't you see, I said, it's scarcely a human face at all. It's the face of some witch, of some devil. He looked at it more closely. Yes, it isn't very pleasant, he said. Scarcely a bedside manner, eh? Yes, I can imagine getting the nightmare if I were to sleep with that close to my bed. I'll have it taken down if you like. I really wish you would, I said. He rang the bell, and with the help of a servant, we detached the picture and carried it out onto the landing and put it with its face to the wall. By Jove, that old lady is a weight, said John, mopping his forehead. I wonder if she had something on her mind. The extraordinary weight of the picture had struck me, too. I was about to reply when I caught sight of my own hand. There was blood on it in considerable quantities, covering the whole palm. I've cut myself somehow, I said. John gave a little startled exclamation. Why, I have, too, he said. Simultaneously, the footman took out his handkerchief and wiped his hands with it. I saw that there was blood also on his handkerchief. John and I went back into the tower room and washed the blood off, but neither on his hands nor on mine was there the slightest trace of a scratch or cut. It seemed to me that, having ascertained this, we both, by a sort of tacit consent, did not allude to it again. Something in my case had dimly occurred to me that I did not wish to think about. It was but a conjecture, but I fancied that I knew the same thing had occurred to him. 
The heat and oppression of the air, for the storm we had expected was still undischarged, increased very much after dinner, and for some time most of the party, among whom were John Clinton and myself, sat outside on the path bounding the lawn, where we had tea. The night was absolutely dark, and no twinkle of star or moon-ray could penetrate the pall of cloud that overset the sky. By degrees, our assembly thinned. The women went up to bed, men dispersed to the smoking or billiard-room, and by eleven o'clock my host and I were the only two left. All the evening I had thought that he had something on his mind, and as soon as we were alone, he spoke. The man who helped us with the picture had blood on his hands, too. Did you notice? he said. I asked him just now if he had cut himself, and he said he supposed he had, but he could not find a mark of it. Now where did that blood come from? By dint of telling myself that I was not going to think about it, I had succeeded in not doing so, and I did not want, especially just at bedtime, to be reminded of it. I don't know, said I, and I don't really care so long as the picture of Mrs. Stone is not by my bed. He got up. But it's odd, he said. Ha, now you'll see another odd thing. A dog of his, an Irish terrier by breed, had come out of the house as we talked. The door behind us into the hall was open, and a bright oblong of light shone across the lawn to the iron gate which led to the rough grass outside, where the walnut tree stood. I saw that the dog had all his hackles up, bristling with rage and fright. His lips were curled back from his teeth, as if he were ready to spring at something, and he was growling to himself. He took not the slightest notice of his master or me, but sniffed and tensely walked across the grass to the iron gate. There he stood for a moment, looking through the bars and still growling. Then, of a sudden, his courage seemed to desert him. He gave one long howl and scuttled back to the house with a curious crouching sort of movement. He does that half a dozen times a day, said John. He sees something which he both hates and fears. I walked to the gate and looked over it. Something was moving on the grass outside and soon a sound of which I could not instantly identify came to my ears. Then I remembered what it was. It was the purring of a cat. I lit a match and saw the purr, a big blue Persian walking round and round in a little circle just outside the gate, stepping high and ecstatically, with tail carried aloft like a banner. Its eyes were bright and shining, and every now and then it put its head down and sniffed the grass. I laughed. The end of that mystery, I'm afraid, I said. Here's a large cat having a Walpurgis night all alone. Yes, that's Darius, said John. He spends half the day and all night there. But that's not the end of the dog mystery, for Toby and he are best friends. But the beginning of the cat mystery. What's the cat doing there? and why is Darius pleased, while Toby is terror-stricken? At that moment I remembered the rather horrible detail of my dream when I saw through the gate, just where the cat was now, the white tombstone with the sinister inscription. But before I could answer, the rain began, 
as suddenly and heavily as if a tap had been turned on. And simultaneously, the big cat squeezed through the bars of the gate and came leaping across the lawn to the house for shelter. Then it sat in the doorway, looking out eagerly into the dark. It spat and struck at John with its paw as he pushed it in in order to close the door. Somehow, with the portrait of Julia Stone in the passage outside, the room in the tower had absolutely no alarm for me. And as I went to bed, feeling very sleepy and heavy, I had nothing more than interest for the curious incident about our bleeding hands and the conduct of the cat and the dog. The last thing I looked at before I put out my light was the square empty space by my bed where the portrait had been. Here, the paper was of its original full tint of dark red. Over the rest of the walls, it had faded. Then I blew out my candle and instantly fell asleep. My wakening was equally instantaneous, and I sat bolt upright in bed under the impression that some bright light had been flashed in my face, though it was now absolutely pitch dark. I knew exactly where I was, in the room which I had dreaded in dreams, but no horror that I ever felt when asleep approached the fear that now invaded my frozen brain. Immediately after, a peal of thunder crackled just above the house. But the probability that it was only a flash of lightning which awoke me gave no reassurance to my galloping heart. Something I knew was in the room with me, and instinctively I put out my right hand, which was the nearest to the wall, to keep it away. And my hand touched the edge of a picture frame hanging close to me. I sprang out of bed, upsetting the small table that stood by it, and heard my watch, candle, and matches clatter onto the floor. But for the moment there was no need of light, for a blinding flash leaped out of the clouds and showed me that by my bed again hung the picture of Mrs. Stone. And instantly the room went into blackness again. But in that flash I saw another thing also, namely a figure that leaned over the end of my bed watching me. It was dressed in some close clinging white garment, spotted and stained with mold, and the face was that of the portrait. Overhead the thunder cracked and roared, and when it ceased and the deathly stillness succeeded, I heard the rustle of movement coming near me, and, more horribly yet, perceived an odor of corruption and decay. And then a hand was laying on the side of my neck, and close beside my ear I heard, by eye and by ear, was still not of this earth, but something that had passed out of the body and had power to make itself manifest. Then a voice, already familiar to me, spoke. I knew you would come to the room in the tower, it said. I have been long waiting for you. At last you have come. Tonight I shall feast. Before long we will feast together. And the quick breathing came closer to me. I could feel it on my neck. Not that, the terror, which I think had paralyzed me for the moment, gave way to the wild instinct of self-preservation. I hit wildly with both arms, kicking out at the same moment, and I heard a little animal squeal, and something soft dropped with a thud beside me. 
I took a couple of steps forward, nearly tripping up over whatever it was that lay there, and by the merest good luck found the handle to the door. In another second I ran out onto the landing and had banged the door behind me. Almost at the same moment I heard a door open somewhere below, and John Clinton, candle in hand, came running upstairs. What is it? he said. I sleep just below you, and I heard a noise as if, good heavens, there's blood on your shoulder. I stood there, so he told me afterwards, swaying from side to side, white as a sheet, with the mark on my shoulder as if a hand covered with blood had lain there. It's in there, I said, pointing. She, you know, the portrait, it's in there too, hanging on the place we took it from. At that he laughed. My dear fellow, this is a mere nightmare, he said. He pushed by me and opened the door, I standing there simply inert with terror, unable to stop him, unable to move. Phew, he said, what an awful smell. Then there was silence. He had passed out of my sight beyond the open door. Next moment he came out again, as white as myself, and instantly shut it. Yes, the portrait's there, he said, and on the floor is a thing, a thing spotted with earth, like what they bury people in. Come away, come away quickly. How I got downstairs I hardly know. An awful shuddering and nausea of the spirit rather than of the flesh had seized me, and more than once he had to place my feet upon the steps, while every now and then he cast glances of terror and apprehension up the stairs. But in time we came to his dressing room on the floor below, and there I told him what I have here described. The sequel can be made short. Indeed, some of my readers have perhaps already guessed what it was if they remember that inexplicable affair of the churchyard at West Folly some eight years ago where an attempt was made three times to bury the body of a certain woman who had committed suicide. On each occasion, the coffin was found in the course of a few days again protruding from the ground. In the third attempt, in order that the thing should not be talked about, the body was buried elsewhere in unconsecrated ground. Where it was buried was just outside the iron gate of the garden belonging to the house where this woman had lived. She had committed suicide in a room at the top of the tower in that house. Her name was Julia Stone. Subsequently, the body was again secretly dug up, and the coffin was found to be full of blood. That was E. F. Benson's The Room in the Tower, as read, once again, by our very own Seth Williams. Thank you, Seth. Well, children of the night, the hour is late, and we've run out of tales to tell. For now. Tales to Terrify is made possible by the tremendous generosity of our supporters on Patreon and PayPal. Incredible fans like Lessel Baxter, Paul Belcher, Amanda Carrillo, Amanda Gottfried, 
and Orion D. Hegra, whose generous support helps keep the lights on and flickering ominously. Not a supporter already? Head over to patreon.com slash tales to terrify, where you'll find all kinds of perks, like ad-free episodes, bonus content, and one-of-a-kind collectibles and merch packs. Every dollar goes back into this show to make it as horrific as possible, and we appreciate it so much. Want another way to support the show that doesn't cost a cent? Head over to Podchaser, Spotify, or Apple Podcasts and leave us a five-star rating or review. You'll not only put an unnaturally wide smile on our faces, but help new listeners discover our terrifying tales, too. Why not share your love of the show out in the world with some Tales to Terrify merch? TalesToTerrify.com slash merch will take you to our Public store, where we've got a great collection of creepy custom and curated designs, so you can show those around you just how twisted you truly are. Tales to Terrify is produced by Seth Williams, Meredith Morgenstern, Andrew Gibson, Crystal Hammond, Spencer Desparty, and myself, Drew Sebastini, with original theme by Nebulous Entertainment. Tales to Terrify is distributed under a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives license. Join us again next week as we embrace the rising darkness with more Tales to Terrify. Want to get a chiseled look in the jawline? Sculpt and shape your jawline with added volume from Juvederm Volux XC. Juvederm Volux XC is an injectable gel specifically designed to be robust enough to improve moderate to severe loss of jawline definition. And it is the first and only hyaluronic acid filler approved for the jawline. Add volume to your jawline for a chiseled look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M dot com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 